Hello and welcome back to the Forsters More Than All podcast. I'm Miri Stickland, Head of Knowledge at Forsters. We've had a little refresh since you last heard from us, but at heart we remain the same with the aim of looking beyond the practice of law, focusing on the issues that matter to our clients and contacts, as well as reinforcing the values that underpin us as a firm. I'm joined today by my new co-host, Robert Lyndon Laird-Craig, Knowledge and Practice Development Lawyer. Hello, Rob. Hi, Mary. Thank you very much. I'm delighted and terrified at the same time to be doing this. Uh, <laughs> very grateful for editing. And alongside us both occupying the hot guest seats today are commercial real estate partner Amy France and private wealth counsel Mike Armstrong. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Delightful to have you both with us. So today we're going to be talking about caring for our ageing population and in what has been termed a demographic revolution, according to recent census data published by the Office of National Statistics, nearly one in five people living in England and Wales are aged 65 or over. And there's also now more people in that age category than children under the age of 15. So with that in mind, the growth of later living homes into its own specialist asset class should come as no surprise. Amy, can you talk us through the evolution of lace to living homes in the UK? Yeah, so I think it's just really interesting how the later living market has evolved in this country in recent years. I mean, when I was growing up in the 90s, ageing myself there, um, I think really the options were either sheltered housing or a care home. And actually, I had one grandma who was in sheltered housing, so that was a sort of independent living unit, but you would typically have a warden and within the home you might have sort of those red emergency pull cords but effectively it was independent living uh, with a tiny bit of support and then another grandma in um, a sort of traditional care home I guess you would so looking back what was that like that was generally a sort of converted larger property not fit for purpose um, and not particularly nice really um, we've come on so much in the decades since then. And I think really now there's what I would call a smorgasbord of later living options. So we've still got things like sheltered housing, but now we've got things like lovely integrated retirement communities, um, all the way through to sort of more standard, but new build purpose-built care homes, um, onto very specialist dementia care homes, which we're going to, I know we're going to come on to a bit later on. Um, and I think in terms of sort of investors in the sector, so I think previously investors were quite worried about investing in care homes because they're not like an office or a big shed. Um, if things go wrong with your tenant, you can't just kick your tenant out, change the locks. Yeah. You've, got, um, you've got issues there around vulnerable people being in the home. You've got regulatory issues. So I think investors were a bit wary about the sector. But I think what we've seen in more recent years is investors who have really um, sort of worked hard to understand the sector. And we act for Octopus Real Estate's Care Home Fund, where they have, you know, they really understand it. They've got um, in-house um, staff who go to the homes to ensure that uh, standards are good and they're complying with CQC. They're very sort of hot on ensuring that the tenant operators are um, doing well financially so that the, they're not uh, facing that difficult issue of, of looking at a, a not performing tenant um, who, what do you do then? You've got to somehow take that back home. So I think the combination of investors who understand the sector much better and then the other end of the 
at the other end of that is that there's um, been a squeeze really, I think on other asset classes within the real estate market and returns aren't as great um, in other sectors. So I think what that's meant is that investors generally uh, from all backgrounds are now looking far more carefully and not only care homes as investments, but the wider later living market. And just explain, sorry, Rob, just explain for us quickly, Amy, mm. what is um, the CQC standard that you alluded to earlier? So the CQC is the Care Quality Commission and they regulate uh, not only care homes, but sort of all health care type um, things. So, yeah, care homes are regulated by the CQC and the CQC will regularly go to uh, look at how the home is performing and they will give them a rating, um, a bit like Ofsted would do for schools. And are investors um, uh, becoming uh, more comfortable with these investments now? So uh, they obviously have, you've described how they've been pushed into this area because of other less well-performing market areas. Um, are they there? Is it bearing fruit in that the concerns that they had are not bearing out the way they thought they would? Yeah, and I think they're just more live to those issues and they sort of have um, strategies for dealing with them. So, for instance, Octopus would have a strategy that they knew if there was a tenant that they were worried about, they would be able to deal with that. They would be able to maybe parachute in a team to deal with that um, not performing tenant if they had to take over the home as landlord. So, yeah, I think investors have just um, got their head around the sort of potential issues in the sector. Also sort of reputational issues, I suppose. If you're a landlord and there's something splashed across the front of the Daily Mail about a particular care home that, you know, there's been issues at, um, you know, people used to worry about that. But I think I think investors have sort of got more comfortable with so, the sector as a so whole. That sort of sounds like in, in this sector then, landlords uh, play a, a more into integral role in the actual um, tenancy, as it were. Yeah. They're, they're more involved in how the tenant behaves and looks after their asset yeah. than a more standoffish landlord would in, in other sectors. Yeah, so I think the, the good specialist investors are very, very good at that. Um, and they do that very well. Yeah. Having that sort of mindfulness of what the end product yeah. is going to be. Yeah. So I think it'd be interesting actually to bring in Mike. Mike's in private client and um, I think it's fair to say that in um, in the last decade or two, the law has changed to reflect the fact that um, we are, as a population, living longer and that dementia and other um, issues are uh, much more prevalent than they used to be and that we have to be more flexible um, in how we deal with people and their capacity. Absolutely. Um, so the test for capacity is really evolved strikingly in light of our greater understanding of mental illness. Um, previously, it was the case that an, an individual either had capacity or they did not. Um, capacity was seen very much as a binary question. Um, you can see that from the way that old-fashioned enduring powers of attorney are still registered, uh, where the question is, uh, does someone lack capacity to manage their affairs or are they at significant risk of um, becoming incapable of doing so in the near future? And if that's the case, you then, as, as an attorney, are obliged to register. And um, from that point, the donor of the power is treated as lacking capacity for all financial purposes. It's much more nuanced now. Precisely. Whereas now, um, since 2005, the new you know, the test under the Mental Capacity Act 
um, regarding decisions in relation to lifetime matters is um, both decision specific and time specific. So it's a matter of can someone take this decision at this point in time and um, what is the impact on them of any potential impairment in their cognitive functions. Um, so the key, the key points to note under the, the more modern test are that more it reflects the fact more complex decisions require um, a greater level of capacity. So for example, you might uh, someone might be able to take decisions about little, uh, small day-to-day sort of -day spending, um, the weekly shop say, um, but not a larger financial decision such as whether or not to sell their house. Um, and it also reflects the fact that an individual's uh, decision-making capabilities can be better at some times than others. So um, going back to people with dementia, frequently um, people who have received a dementia diagnosis are more alert and more capable of processing information in the morning. And it's a process known as sundowning. So the, the, you know, their cognitive uh, functions decline throughout the day. And so as a result, um, I normally, where I'm dealing with clients who have received a dementia diagnosis, trying to schedule a meeting in the morning wherever possible. Um, so the current test for capacity reflects that more sort of fluctuating nature of dementia. Abs absolutely, yes. Or in fact, it's, um, yes, it does. It reflects the fact that um, some days might be better than others. Yeah. Um, it is it pinpoints the decision to a moment in time rather than taking a sort of holistic approach, you know, a, a long-term binary uh, basis. So it reflects the fact that, for example, if um, someone has a urinary tract infection, uh, that can have a severe impact on their capacity in the short term. But as soon as it's treated, uh, as soon as the underlying cause is treated, full capacity can be recovered and with it, decision-making abilities. And then sort of evidentially, do you have to be quite careful, though, around, so for example, if somebody's um, making a will at the point at which they've had a dementia diagnosis, how can you evidence the fact that at the point at which they made the will, they had capacity, although perhaps they wouldn't necessarily have capacity that afternoon? Um, well, it, I suppose what it comes down to is... Um, getting as much support and much as much supporting information to um, back up your own judgment about whether someone has capacity or not. Um, so actually in the context of lasting powers of attorney, I recently um, prepared them and supervised them, acted as certificate provider as it's known, um, for a client who'd recently received an Alzheimer's diagnosis. I was perfectly comfortable that she understood exactly what the documents did. Um, she called me in some state of distress having recently received the diagnosis and we were able to act before um, before her capacity declined. So, um, and in in the context of a will, um, there's a case called Wee Simpson, which uh, talks about what's referred to as the golden rule, which also described as the golden but tactless rule, which is if you're aware that someone is particularly sort of, someone is particularly elderly or, or you're aware that they are suffering from um, some kind of impairment uh, to their cognitive faculties, you should insist that they are um, their capacities to make the will is assessed by a doctor immediately before they sign, and ideally the doctor should act as a witness. 
And obviously that is that can be a difficult conversation to navigate yeah. um, because one of the, the big things is that people, proud independent people who are used to living, living, uh, managing their own affairs, uh, don't like being being told that they may no longer be able to do that for themselves, or even that that it's uh, you know, a matter that's open for debate. Yeah. And it's difficult because um, the medical um, practitioner is there to effectively inform the legal test, and that can also cause some difficulty. I mean, I, I remember my, um, I have a grandparent who had dementia, and um, he was visited by his GP who told me afterwards that he would have been happy to say he could have signed a will. Um, but uh, the carer who was living with him at the time then said that he stood up, asked who that person was, despite him having been his doctor for 20 years, uh, and then went off and um, uh, got into the bath with his clothes on. And, you know, you know it sort of didn't um, clearly understand what was going on, but as far as the doctor was concerned, he was able to speak coherently and say yes and, um, and was absolutely fine. And it's, it's very difficult because, uh, you know, the legal test has to be met and you've got to be happy that it wasn't just um, a sort of cursory conversation, that it was, in fact, um, somebody understanding the nature of what they're doing exactly, and the consequences of what they're doing. And um, which is um, the only real solution to that is taking as much time as possible to, to really have a full discussion with the, the person in question um, and indeed, to get to get in, to get information in your case, uh, the conversation with the carer there is crucial because it, it's another piece of the the overall picture that um, you don't necessarily get from a conversation with one person, particularly as someone you know, as in the case of your grandfather. Well, I suspect um, uh, people are uh, bright and adaptable. The fact you are, the fact someone has dementia <laughs> doesn't mean that they've lost all of their faculties and I mean a classic one can be that um, where someone is having trouble remembering people's names or putting names to faces uh, they just avoid using they, they refer to you and they don't they don't mm. they don't use people's names because that would sort of give the game away. Mm. I remember um, a medical practitioner who we have worked with professionally mm. a lot in the past came and spoke to us and he's very conscious of the legal test as well which is very helpful um, and he said that um, what he very often does is go to a person's home and ask them to make a cup of tea because mm. am I right in thinking that the cognitive process in going and getting a mug, putting the kettle on, tea bag, getting out of the fridge and holding a conversation actually is very indicative if you can't do that of um, possible dementia. Yes, I suppose that's that's drawing upon so many different skills is your sort of spatial awareness um, and awareness of your surroundings and dementia is not just about memory there's there are so many other um, you know, it, it is a if you like a collection of um, a collection of diseases really yeah. really um, and that can have an impact on any number of things I mean in theory potentially someone could be uh, perfectly capable of making a cup of tea but also Suffering from delusions that might come out in the in the conversation that uh, that could that, and those delusions in turn may or may not have an impact on their ability to make a will, mm. or, or indeed to take other decisions about their their sort of day to day management of their property, management of their own care. Um, so at the same time, that the part of the evolution of the law has been to, um, as you say, change from this binary process mm -hmm. where somebody has capacity or they don't, and also to engage with. Um, things like best interests 
principles, which are not necessarily what you think are in that person's best interest. You've got to be very subjective about it. And you have to take everything on a decision by decision basis. So um, you're looking at all the factors you said about when um, you're mm. going to be asking somebody what they want to do and also the nature of what you're asking them to do. You know, Are you talking about do you want to go out for lunch or stay at home or are you talking about who do you want to inherit your estate? Um, that sort of thing you know, is, is much more nuanced. And so the, the fact that the law has evolved um, to reflect the fact that it's more complicated than um, a sort of binary, you're either capable or you're not. Is that translated across to the property market? Is that what you're seeing then going from a previous model where you just had one type of housing broadly, that's where you went once you were um, unable to look after yourself um, entirely. Now it's much more, um, uh, I, I, I dread yeah. to use the word nuanced yeah. again, but um, uh, so this is not the, not the nuanced podcast, yeah. but um, but yes, yes. Uh, that, that actually now the sector has to adapt to the fact that people live differently and that it is complicated. Yeah, exactly. And I think... I think also we, we don't go from being fit, active and, and having full mental capacity to then one day being sort of in a state where you would need to go into a residential care home. There's obviously, you know, later life now is much longer. Um, we go through more stages of it. And I think what's happening in the later living market is you're seeing the market respond to that. Um, so especially with the rise of what are known now as integrated retirement communities. Um, which are of often sort of very attractive places to live um, and really appealing to those people who are sort of facing later life but almost don't want to admit it um, and want to have some great years, um, you know, in their 60s, 70s and beyond. So these are communities where effectively you, you live independently but there will be on-site, normally a, a small care provision if you need it. Um, but I guess they're all about the amenity. So it's all about communal spaces, communal restaurants. They might have a lovely swimming pool and gym. And I'm it's really thinking, about... Have yeah. you read that book by Richard uh, Esther? Is it the Thursday, yeah. Thursday, Thursday <laughs> Men's Club? Yeah. I just always think of that with their like, yeah. lovely swimming pool and yoga classes. Yeah. yeah. Well, I've heard people in the sector say that that has actually done more to kind of raise awareness of retirement communities than, than anything <laughs> they've ever tried to do in terms of advertising, which is... <laughs> Which is brilliant, obviously. So, yeah, we've seen a, a huge rise in investment um, in those kind of retirement communities. Um, Presumably those kind of communities where there is this sort of space for people to transition into different accommodation as their needs change. Presumably that can also make it easier for dementia sufferers because of the um, familiarity of surroundings, because that is something that, I think it's quite important is, you know, mm. the feeling of security in surroundings and something that I think a lot of people battle with when an elderly parents go, at, you know, yeah. at the point at which they really need to go into sort of proper care. Um, you know, how, how you sort of manage that transition. Can you talk a bit about um, the sort of specifics of how dementia units might be designed? Yeah, so I think it is, this is really interesting. I mean, it's estimated that about 80% of residents in care homes will have some form of dementia. So, you know, it's, it's obviously a big issue. Um, and as Mike was just saying, dementia isn't just about memory loss. So often dementia patients might have impaired hearing. They might not be able to see so well. Um, 
they have trouble recognizing surroundings. And a big issue for a lot of dementia patients is how they perceive 3D objects. So it's really interesting what they're trying to do in some dementia units in terms of the design um, and sort of how they make them look. So, you know, they try to use adapted patterns, contrasts um, and color to make that environment just easier for that patient to perceive. So you wouldn't, in a dementia unit or care home normally, they don't use lots of busy patterns um, and high contrast designs. They try to keep everything quite plain and quite serene and sort of soft materials. Um, and actually things like on the walls and the floor, they will try to use contrasting colors so that it's easier for people looking down a corridor to see where the floor is and where the walls are. Um, they also do things like try and take out sort of um, visual barriers. So if you have say, a corridor and then you're going into a room, they wouldn't have doors on that. They'll just have maybe like an open space so that it's easier for people to, to move through and encourage movement around the care homes. Um, and I think there's some lovely examples in some care homes where they use what's called sort of reminiscence. So they, they might use sort of... Um, pictures from eras bygone eras where the residents are very familiar with those of the 1940s or 1950s um because you know it's it's known that dementia patients obviously can remember things actually better in the past sometimes than they can short-term memory yeah absolutely i remember hearing this great analogy that um your memory is almost like a bookshelf and where people have um received a dementia diagnosis, it's frequently almost as though the bookshelf has been shaken and it's the volumes on the top being the, the short-term memories that have fallen away. But actually the one the ones that are much more intact, as you say, Amy, the, um, the longer-term memories. I remember um, going to see an elderly client who was a little, no, a little sketchy, shall we say, on the on the um, what had happened that morning but was telling me all about um, her riding instructor from when she was, you know, and how, how she'd been taught to ride on a horse called Prince. It's funny what stays in <laughs> mind, isn't it? <laughs> um, the horse formerly known as. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so Amy, Amy yeah. when we're in um, our retirement community, yes. who do you think is going to be on the wall? Do you think it'll be Alanis Morissette? Or... <laughs> Such a good question. Take that, maybe? Well, Miri, definitely. Yeah. yeah. She's already got them all over her bedroom now. <laughs> the, the, the thing that's very interesting about this is that uh, the, there seems to be something that's a bit more preemptive now, rather than before it seemed like something um, became a challenge and you had to try and adapt to it. Um, whereas um, I, I, I have some family in the States who in their 50s said they had decided they were going to sell their house and move to what um, was uh, an equivalent sort of retirement community. And I had my very sort of old school head on thinking, Shit, why are you doing that? <laughs> a, you're the biggest party animals in the family. Oh. And, and B, isn't this a bit um, premature? And it turns out that actually it's much more about them seeing where they want to be in 20 years time and 30 years time and saying, well, I don't want to deal with all of the stress then. And if there are more and more people are doing that at that age, in fact, they are wilder than they were before. They they all behave um, abominably and have an absolutely terrific time. And they, they don't have any stress of thinking, yeah. well, I'm fine now, but you know, I know in 10 years time, I'll, I'll probably 
start finding a bit everything a bit more difficult yeah. so th that that sounds like what's happening in the market here as well yeah well that's interesting you talk about the states because the states and australia are sort of way ahead of us really in terms of retirement communities so i think about six and a half percent of over 65s in the u.s live in a retirement community it's pretty much similar in australia about 5.5 percent but in the uk just I think just under 1% of over 65s are living in these kind of communities. So you can see why investors are looking carefully at this market. I mean, there's a huge opportunity for growth given the lack of supply and the demographics. Yeah. And that's a that's a, a, a general market pressure as well in the UK, just, yeah. just housing more broadly. Yeah, totally. And I mean, obviously, I mean, I think the sector get a bit frustrated because the government haven't to date done much to help them, they would say, albeit um, in the levelling up white paper, there has been um, an announcement that they are now putting together what's going to be called an older, pe older people's housing task force. So we hope to sort of see some uh, real progress with that once we have our new prime minister, whoever um, that might be. Yeah, but I think, yeah. Uh, you know, the government haven't done much to support it, but you would think they would because actually what what the retirement communities are doing is is freeing up those larger family homes um, where, you know, there might be an older couple or an old person living in four or five bedroom house, um, which actually it would be great if that could come back onto the housing market um, and they could, you know, move to somewhere which is more appropriate in terms of size and... Um, an amenity for them, yeah. Yeah. And I suppose going back to Rob's uh, retirement community party animal story, mm -hmm. um, something that, that I was sort of thinking about there is that they've, they've very much sort of proactively taken that decision themselves. And mm. I guess that feeds back into what you were saying earlier, Mike, about mm. people not wanting to feel that they're having that agency taken away from them and that they are capable still of making their own decisions which I suppose then leads us on to the importance of having those difficult conversations at the right time. No, ab absolutely. I think um, particularly as the population ages and we, it seems that we are much better at treating physical illnesses and yet uh, the, you know, the treatment of mental illness is still uh, you know, something that, that medical science finds much more difficult. I think People, my experience anyway, is people are quite happy to come in and talk about their wills. And the idea, the idea of dying is something that many people are resigning, understand, resigned to. Um, whereas the idea that you may lose mental capacity is something that in, be unable to be still physically present, but unable to really have control over your own affairs is something that people find extremely difficult. Yeah. Um, but you're, Mary, you're quite right. I think um, to be... Is very, which is one of the reasons why it's so important to, to plan in advance and to have those conversations, to be thinking about um, what would happen if I were to lose the ability to either manage my own property and finances or to make decisions for myself about my health and care, including about um, life-sustaining treatment, you know, the ability to consent or refuse to it, which are the two, um, the two sort of heads, if you like, that... Uh, currently we can plan for using lasting powers of attorney um, and under an LPA so long as you have capacity to delegate decision-making powers um, by, by signing an LPA you can appoint a trusted friends family members to take those decisions on your behalf should you be unable to to do so yourself 
Um, and unfortunately, really, the should you lose capacity and not have LPAs in place um, or suitable old fashioned enduring powers of attorney, uh, the alternative is unfortunately, and that largely, certainly on the property side, an application to the court of protection to enable someone else to manage your, you know, to take that decision for you as your as your deputy. And really, what that what that means is you don't get to choose who yeah, who the person appointed is. It might be a family member, but it might well be a a professional who you've never had any contact with before yourself, and. Um, You've got the cost of the application and you've got the ongoing cost of the deputyship. The deputy has got to um, prepare and file accounts every year. Their authority comes from the court rather than from you. So they're always accountable to the court and having to update the court on what's happening. And um, on the, the health and care side, decisions are made by your doctor. In the absence of an LPA, uh, decisions will be made by your doctors or by those responsible for social care. So really that's a matter of the it being the local authority and rather than being able to choose where you might want to see out your days in community of the kind that Amy's been talking about, it will be a decision made based on, you know, based on any number of other criteria realistically by people with limited budgets and who don't have to necessarily have the same awareness of you and your preferences, although they will be those would be taken into account. It's not it's not someone who would have the same to real grasp of what you might want in the same way that a, a family member or other person that you trust would. Um, so really, all this really just underlines the importance of having that conversation at the, um, early on to um, make sure that your wishes are understood. Would you make would you like to stay at home for as long as possible? Would you be happy to move into a, retire a retirement community? Would you like, should you be prioritising somewhere local that friends and family might be able to visit you? Or would you prefer to stay somewhere more luxurious at a, at a distance? Um, these are all, a, any expression of wishes along those lines would be taken into account uh, by your attorneys and given significant weight as part of working out what your best interests are judged objectively. So it's really as important, if not more so, to have thought about it and planned um, in advance, just as you would with a will. I mean, the complications of dying intestate are sort of, I think, relatively well known, but perhaps mm. this, you know, losing capacity and not having a lasting power of attorney, perhaps the implications of that are sort of less, I would suspect, are less well-known to the general public. Mm. Yes, I think that's that's undoubtedly um, that's undoubtedly the case. I think that, um, I think it's about a third of over 65 have an LPA, which is another, another way of putting it is that two thirds don't. Yeah. Um, mm. And um, whereas about very roughly um, half of the population has a will at the moment. Um, and I think would suggest that there's about a sixth of the population that is making wills, but not mm. thinking about the possibility of incapacity at the same time. Yeah. And I always think these decisions, these sorry, these discussions are best had the further away the um, yeah. event is. I want to have conversations with my nieces about all these things um, now when I'm you know hurtling towards forty, because hopefully, <laughs> touch wood, 
Um, uh, I'm, I'm quite far away from any of it becoming important. Um, but if I start having these conversations, um, when, you know, it's a bit round the corner, it's a more difficult thing mm. to, to do because it, it, um, it, the proximity sort of makes it more real. Mm, uh, yeah. And I think there's almost a taboo around it as well. Mm. Um, funnily enough, having recently got married, I was talking to my wife about the fact that, um, we need to update our wills and think about making lasting powers of attorney. And um, she more or less talk, uh, suggested that Romantic it was quite... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the word morbid was used. <laughs> is what I can say. <laughs> and I think, uh, particularly for Rob and uh, me, work working with uh, wills no, with uh, questions about mortality and incapacity all the time, you forget this is something that people don't like to talk yeah. about or really like to consider. Um, no one likes to think about the, the prospect of dying or getting ill. Do you find when people come in to make their will, will you generally sort of offer, say to them as a matter of course, like, is this something you want to think about? And do you yeah. find mostly people do take that up? Yes, I think we certainly always say, if you're making a will, you should think about making an LPA as well. Yeah. Um, I think it's striking that I'd say it's probably between half and two thirds of clients make an LPA as well, um, based on recent experience. And quite a few are interested in the idea, but don't quite get around to quite get around to doing it. Life intervenes; they feel they've done their will. Yeah. Um, but we, you know, we we supply them the information, give them the advice that it's a good idea, and they hopefully they'll come back to me. They'll pick up the. They know the, the process again at a later date. Um, notoriously, private client lawyers are the worst for actually doing their own <laughs> LPAs and wills. <laughs> so don't let your honeymoon discussion um, <laughs> slip. Make sure you know exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was, um, it was a strange one to broach on the sun lounge. It has to be said. Thank you both so much for joining us today. If listeners would like to keep up to date with future episodes or listen to our back catalogue, you can find us on all good podcast platforms. Please do give us a follow and maybe even a lovely five-star rating or a, or a positive review. <laughs> <laughs> but not on one of those bad platforms. No, no, no not on one of them. You won't find us on a bad podcast. No, no, we're only on the good ones. Um, and if you'd like more news and views from the firm, you can head over to our website, forsters.co.uk, or you can also follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, or all of the above, if you're minded to do so. <laughs> <laughs> and until next time, goodbye. Forster's More Than Law podcast is for general information only and should not be considered to be professional advice. Forster's LLP accepts no liability or responsibility for any direct or consequential loss arising from the use of, reliance on or reference to this podcast. Forster's LLP makes no warranty or representation as to the accuracy of the information contained in this podcast. The More Than Law podcast and any copyright in it is the property of Forster's LLP and it shall not be used, reproduced or quoted, whether in whole or part, without Forster's LLP's prior written consent. Thank you.